welcome back everyone to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Today's story, from one of our favorite authors, O. Henry, is called A Lickpenny Lover. And now, our story. There were 3,000 girls in the biggest store. Maisie was one of them. She was 18 and a sales lady in the gents' gloves department. Here she became versed in two varieties of human beings, the kind of gents who buy their gloves in department stores and the kind of women who buy gloves for unfortunate gents. Besides this wide knowledge of the human species, Maisie had acquired other information. She had listened to the promulgated wisdom of the 2,999 other girls and had stored it in a brain that was as secretive and wary as that of a Maltese cat. Perhaps nature, foreseeing that she would lack wise counselors, had mingled the saving ingredient of shrewdness along with her beauty, as she has endowed the silver fox of the priceless fur above the other animals with cunning. For Maisie was beautiful. She was a deep-tinted blonde, with the calm poise of a lady who cooks butter kegs in a window, and as you closed your band over the tape line for your glove measure, you thought of the goddess Hebe, and as you looked again you wondered how she had come by Minerva's eyes. When the floor walker was not looking, Maisie chewed tutti-frutti. When he was looking, she gazed up as if at the clouds and smiled wistfully. That is the shop girl's smile, and I enjoin you to shun it unless you are well fortified with the callosity of the heart, caramels, and a congeniality for the capers of Cupid. This smile belonged to Maisie's recreation hours and not to the store, but the floor walker must have his own. He is the Shylock of the stores. When he comes nosing around, the bridge of his nose is a toll bridge. It is goo-goo eyes or git when he looks toward a pretty girl. Of course, not all floor walkers are thus. Only a few days ago the papers printed news of one over 80 years of age. One day Irving Carter, painter, millionaire, traveler, poet, automobilist, happened to enter the biggest store. It is due to him to add that his visit was not voluntary. Filial duty took him by the collar and dragged him inside while his mother philandered among the bronze and terracotta statuettes. Carter strolled across to the glove counter in order to shoot a few minutes on the wing. His need for gloves was genuine. He had forgotten to bring a pair with him. But his action hardly calls for apology, because he had never heard of glove counter flirtations. As he neared the vicinity of his fate, he hesitated, suddenly conscious of this unknown phase of Cupid's less worthy profession. Three or four cheap fellows, sonorously garbed, were leaning over the counters, wrestling with the mediatorial hand coverings, while giggling girls played vivacious seconds to their lead upon the strident string of coquetry. Carter would have retreated, but he had gone too far. Maisie confronted him behind her counter with a questioning look in eyes as coldly, beautifully, warmly blue as the glint of summer sunshine on an iceberg drifting in the southern seas. And then Irving Carter, painter, millionaire, etc., felt a warm flush rise to his aristocratically pale face. But not from diffidence. The blush was intellectual in origin. He knew in a moment that he stood in the ranks of the ready-made youths who wooed the giggling girls at other counters. Himself leaned against the oaken trysting place of a cockney cupid with a desire in his heart for the favor of a glove sales girl. He was no more than Bill and Jack and Mickey, and then he felt a sudden tolerance for them, and an elating, courageous contempt 
for the conventions upon which he had fed, and an unhesitating determination to have this perfect creature for his own. When the gloves were paid for and wrapped, the carter lingered for a moment. The dimples at corners of Maisie's damask mouth deepened. All gentlemen who bought gloves lingered in just that way. She curved an arm, showing like Psyche's through her shirtwaist sleeve, and rested an elbow upon the showcase hedge. Carter had never before encountered a situation of which he had not been perfect master. But now he stood far more awkward than Bill or Jack or Mickey. He had no chance of meeting this beautiful girl socially. His mind struggled to recall the nature and habits of shop girls as he had read or heard of them. Somehow he had received the idea that they sometimes did not insist too strictly upon the regular channels of introduction. His heart beat loudly at the thought of proposing an unconventional meeting with this lovely and virginal being, but the tumult in his heart gave him courage. After a few friendly and well-received remarks on general subjects, he laid his card by her hand on the counter. "'Will you please pardon me,' he said, "'if I seem too bold, "'but I earnestly hope you will allow me "'the pleasure of seeing you again. "'There is my name. "'I assure you that it is with the greatest respect "'that I ask the favor of becoming "'one of your acquaintances. "'May I not hope for the privilege?' "'Maisie knew men, "'especially men who buy gloves. "'Without hesitation she looked him frankly "'and smilingly in the eyes and said, "'Sure, I guess you're all right.' I don't usually go out with strange gentlemen, though. It ain't quite ladylike. When should you want to see me again? As soon as I may, said Carter. If you would allow me to call at your home, I... Maisie laughed musically. Oh, gee, no, she said, emphatically. If you could see our flat once, there's five of us in three rooms. I'd just like to see Ma's face if I was to bring a gentleman friend there. Anywhere, then said the now enamored Carter. That will be convenient to you. Say, suggested Maisie, with a bright idea look in her peach-blow face, I guess Thursday night will about suit me. Suppose you come to the corner of 8th Avenue and 48th Street at 7.30. I live right near the corner. But I've got to be back home by 11. Ma never lets me stay out after 11. Carter promised gratefully to keep the tryst, and then hastened to his mother who was looking about for him to ratify her purchase of a bronze Diana. A salesgirl with small eyes and an obtuse nose strolled near Maisie with a friendly leer. "'Did you make a hit with his knobs, Maze?' she asked familiarly. "'The gentleman asked permission to call,' answered Maisie, with a grand air as she slipped Carter's card into the bosom of her waist. "'Permission to call?' echoed small eyes with a snigger. Did he say anything about dinner in the Waldorf and a spin in his auto afterward? Oh, cheese it, said Maisie, wearily. You've been used to swell things, I don't think. You've had a swelled beat ever since that hose cart driver took you out to a chop suey joint. No, he never mentioned the Waldorf, but there's a Fifth Avenue address on his card, and if he buys the supper, you can bet your life there won't be no pigtail on the waiter that takes the order. As Carter glided away from the biggest store with his mother in his electric runabout, he bit his lip with a dull pain at his heart. He knew that love had come to him for the first time in all the twenty-nine years of his life, and that the object of it should make so readily an appointment with him at a street corner, though it was a step toward his desires, tortured him with misgivings. Carter did not know the shop girl, 
He did not know that her home is often either a scarcely habitable tiny room or a domicile filled to overflowing with kith and kin. The street corner is her parlor, the park is her drawing room, the avenue is her garden walk, yet for the most part she is an inviolate mistress of herself in them, as is my lady inside her tapestried chamber. One evening at dusk, two weeks after their first meeting, Carter and Maisie strolled arm in arm into a little dimly lit park. They found a bench, tree-shadowed and secluded, and sat there. For the first time his arm stole gently around her. Her golden bronze head slid restfully against his shoulder. Gee, sighed Maisie, thankfully. Why didn't you ever think of that before? Maisie, said Carter, earnestly, you surely know that I love you. I ask you sincerely to marry me. You know me well enough by this time to have no doubts of me. I want you, and I must have you. I care nothing for the difference in our stations. What is the difference? asked Maisie, curiously. Well, there isn't any, said Carter, quickly, except in the minds of foolish people. It is in my power to give you a life of luxury. My social position is beyond dispute, and my means are ample. They all say that, remarked Maisie. It's the kid they all give you. I suppose you really work in a delicatessen or follow the races. I ain't as green as I look. I can furnish you all the proofs you want, said Carter, gently. And I want you, Maisie. I loved you the first day I saw you. They all do, said Maisie, with an amused laugh. To hear him talk, if I could meet a man that got stuck on me the third time he'd seen me, I think I'd get mashed on him. Please don't say such things, pleaded Carter. Listen to me, dear. Ever since I first looked into your eyes, you've been the only woman in the world for me. Oh, ain't you the kidder, smiled Maisie. How many other girls did you ever tell that? But Carter persisted, and at length he reached the flimsy, fluttering little soul of the shop girl that existed somewhere deep down in her lovely bosom. His words penetrated the heart whose very lightness was its safest armor. She looked up at him with eyes that saw, and a warm glow visited her cool cheeks. Tremblingly, awfully, her moth wings closed, and she seemed about to settle upon the flower of love. Some faint glimmer of life and its possibilities on the other side of her glove counter dawned upon her. Carter felt the change and crowded the opportunity. "'Marry me, Maisie,' he whispered softly and we will go away from this ugly city to beautiful ones. We will forget work and business, and life will be one long holiday. I know where I should take you. I've been there often. Just think of a shore where summer is eternal, where the waves are always rippling on the lovely beach, and the people are happy and free as children. We will sail to those shores, and remain there as long as you please. In one of those faraway cities, there are grand and lovely palaces and towers full of beautiful pictures and statues. The streets of the city are water, and one travels about in... I know, said Maisie, sitting up suddenly. Gondolas. Yes, smiled Carter. I thought so, said Maisie. And then, continued Carter, we will travel on and see whatever we wish in the world. After the European cities, we will visit India and the ancient cities there, and ride on elephants 
and see the wonderful temples of the Hindus and Brahmins and the Japanese gardens and the camel trains and chariot races in Persia and all the queer sights of foreign countries. Don't you think you'd like it, Maisie? Maisie rose to her feet. I think we'd better be going home, she said, coolly. It's getting late. Carter humored her. He had come to know her varying, thistle-down moods, and that it was useless to combat them. But he felt a certain happy triumph. He had held for a moment, though by a silken thread, the soul of his wild psyche, and hope was stronger within him. Once she had folded her wings and her cool hand had closed about his own. At the biggest store the next day, Maisie's chum, Lulu, we laid her in an angle of the counter. "'So how are you and your swell friend making it?' she asked. "'Oh, him?' said Maisie, patting her side curls. "'He ain't in it any more. "'Say, Lou, what do you think that fellow wanted me to do?' "'Go on the stage?' guessed Lulu, breathlessly. "'Nit! He's too cheap a guy for that. "'He wanted me to marry him and go down to Coney Island for a wedding tour.' Ladies and gentlemen, I take great pleasure in introducing to you Zach Keeney, the human cannonball who is shot across the lagoon at the rate of one mile a minute. Ready! We'll return to our story right after this message from one of our sponsors. And now for our second story, New York by Campfire Light, by O'Henry. Away out in the Creek Nation, we learned things about New York. We were on a hunting trip, and were camped one night on the bank of a little stream. Bud Kingsbury was our skilled hunter and guide, and it was from his lips that we had explanations of Manhattan and the queer folks that inhabit it. Bud had once spent a month in New York City, and a week or two at other times, and he was pleased to discourse to us of what he had seen. Fifty yards away from our camp was pitched the teepee of a wandering family of Indians that had come up and settled there for the night. An old, old Indian woman was trying to build a fire under an iron pot hung upon three sticks. Bud went over to her assistance and soon had her fire going. When he came back, we complimented him playfully upon his gallantry. Oh, said Bud, don't mention it. It's a way I have. Whenever I see a lady trying to cook things in a pot and having trouble... I always go to the rescue. I'd done the same thing once in a high-toned house in New York City. Heap big society TP on Fifth Avenue. That engine lady kind of recalled it to my mind. Yes, I endeavors to be polite and help the ladies out. Well, naturally, the camp demanded the particulars. I was manager of the Triangle B Ranch in the Panhandle, said Bud. It was owned at that time by Old Man Sterling of New York. He wanted to sell out, and he wrote for me to come on to New York and explain the ranch to the syndicate that wanted to buy. So I sends to Fort Worth and has a $40 suit of clothes made and hits the trail for the big village. Well, when I got there, old man Sterling and his outfit certainly laid themselves out to be agreeable. We had business and pleasure so mixed up that you couldn't tell whether it was a treat or a trade half the time. We had trolley rides and cigars and theater roundups and rubber parties. "'Rubber parties?' said a listener, inquiringly. "'Sure,' said Bud. "'Didn't you ever attend them? "'You walk around and try to look at the tops of the skyscrapers. "'You know, rubbernecking. "'Well, we sold the ranch, 
"'and old man Sterling asks me round to his house "'to take grub on the night before I started back. "'It wasn't any high-collared affair, "'just me and the old man and his wife and daughter. "'But they was a fine-haired outfit all right, "'and the lilies of the field wasn't in it. "'They made my Fort Worth clothes carpenter "'look like a dealer in horse blankets and G-strings. "'And then the table was all pompous with flowers, "'and there was a whole kit of tools laid out beside everybody's plate. "'You'd have thought you was fixed out to burglarize a restaurant "'before you could get your grub.' "'but I'd been in New York over a week then, "'and I was getting on to stylish ways. "'I kind of trailed behind "'and watched the others use the hardware supplies, "'and then I tackled the check with the same weapons. "'It ain't much trouble to travel with the high flyers "'after you find out their gate. "'I got along fine. "'I was feeling cool and agreeable, "'and pretty soon I was talking away fluent as you please, "'all about the ranch in the West, "'and telling them how the Indians eat grasshopper stew and snakes, "'and you never saw people so interested.' "'but the real joy of that feast was that Miss Sterling. "'Just a little trick she was, "'not bigger than two bits worth the chewing plug, "'but she had a way about her that seemed to say she was the people, "'and you believed it. "'And yet she never put on any airs, "'and she smiled at me the same as if I was a millionaire "'while I was telling about Creek Dog Feast, "'and she listened like it was news from home. "'By and by after we had had oysters "'and some watery soup and truck that was never in my repertory, "'A Methodist preacher brings in a kind of camp-stove arrangement, "'all silver on long legs, with a lamp under it. "'Miss Sterling lights up and begins to do some cooking right on the supper table. "'I wonder why old man Sterling didn't hire a cook with all the money he had. "'Pretty soon she dished out some cheesy-tasting truck that she said was rabbit, "'but I swear there'd never been a molly cottontail in a mile of it. "'The last thing on the program was lemonade.' "'It was brought around in little flat glass bowls "'and set by your plate. "'I was pretty thirsty, "'and I picked up mine and took a big swig of it. "'Right there was where the little lady had made a mistake. "'She had put in the lemon all right, "'but she'd forgot the sugar. "'The best housekeepers slip up sometimes. "'I thought maybe Miss Sterling "'was just learning to keep house and cook. "'That rabbit would surely make you think so. "'And I says to myself, "'Little lady, sugar or no sugar, "'I'll stand by you.' "'and I raises up my bowl again "'and drinks the last drop of the lemonade. "'And then all the balance of them "'picks up their bowls and does the same. "'And then I gives Miss Sterling the laugh proper "'just to carry it off like a joke "'so she wouldn't feel bad about the mistake. "'After we all went into the sitting room, "'she sat down and talked to me quite a while. "'It was so kind of you, Mr. Kingsbury,' says she, "'to bring my blunder off so nicely. "'It was so stupid of me to forget the sugar.' "'Never you mind,' says I. "'Some lucky man will throw his rope over a mighty elegant little housekeeper some day, not far from here.' "'If you mean me, Mr. Kingsbury,' says she, laughing out loud, "'I hope you will be as lenient with my poor housekeeping as you have been.' "'Don't mention it,' says I. "'Anything to oblige the ladies.' Bud seized his reminiscences, and then someone asked him what he considered the most striking and prominent trait of New Yorkers. "'Well, the most visible and peculiar trait of New York folks,' answered Bud, "'is New York. Most of them has New York on the brain. "'They have heard of other places, such as Waco, and Paris, and Hot Springs, and London, "'but they don't believe in them. "'They think that town is all Marino. "'Now, to show you how much they care for their village, "'I'll tell you about one of them that strayed out as far as the Triangle B "'while I was working there.' This New Yorker came out there looking for a job on the ranch. 
"'He said he was a good horseback rider, "'and there was pieces of tan bark hanging on his clothes "'yet from his riding school. "'Well, for a while they put him to keeping books in the ranch store, "'for he was a devil at figures. "'But he got tired of that "'and asked for something more in the line of activity. "'The boys on the ranch liked him all right, "'but he made us tired shouting New York all the time. "'Every night he'd tell us about East River "'and J.P. Morgan and Eden Mousse "'and Hetty Green and Central Park "'till we used to throw tin plates and branding irons at him. "'Well, one day this chap gets on a pitching pony, "'and the pony kind of sidled up his back "'and went to eating grass while the New Yorker was coming down. "'He came down on his head on a chunk of mesquite wood, "'and he didn't show any designs toward getting up again. "'We laid him out in a tent, and he begun to look pretty dead. "'So Gideon P. saddles up and burns the wind "'for old Doc Sleeper's residence in Dogtown, 30 miles away. "'The doctor comes over, and he investigates the patient. "'Boys,' says he, "'you might as well go to playing seven-up for his saddle and clothes, "'for his head's fractured, and if he lives ten minutes, "'it'll be a remarkable case of longevity. "'Of course, we didn't gamble for the poor rooster's saddle. "'That was one of Doc's jokes. "'But we stood around feeling solemn, "'and all of us forgive him for having talked us to death about New York.' I never saw anybody about to hand in his checks act more peaceful than this fellow. His eyes were fixed way up in the air, and he was using rambling words to himself all about sweet music and beautiful streets and white-robed forms, and he was smiling like dying was a pleasure. Well, he's about gone now, said the doc. Whenever they begin to think they see heaven, it's all off. Well, blamed if that New York man didn't sit right up when he heard the doc say that. Say, says he, kind of disappointed. Was that heaven? Confound it all. I thought it was Broadway. Some of you fellows get my clothes. I'm going to get up. And I'll be blamed, concluded Bud, if he wasn't on the train with a ticket for New York in his pocket four days afterward. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new episode. Please do send us a review if you get a chance. We would appreciate that. Everyone stay safe, and we'll be back soon. Hi, listeners. This is John. I just wanted to add a little footnote. I'll be honest with you. It took me a couple minutes to realize that those little lemon juice bowls that he thought needed sugar were actually just for dipping fingers in after eating seafood, and they were having oysters that night. When I realized that, it just broke me up. I was a little late to the game, but I did catch on. <laughs> Hope you enjoy O. Henry stories as much as I do.